Well, it's good to see you guys today. I want to welcome those who watch live stream online. I know it's still lightning and thundering and raining hard. And and so uh, I do want to say to those of you watching uh, on Facebook, uh, this is probably going to be the most important message I've given in the last two years. And so if somebody's getting their coffee or, you know, they're, they're still in their pajamas, just get them and have them come watch the service with you. Uh, so <clears throat> this week I was supposed to continue in our series we've been on looking at some of the problem pe- problems people have with Christianity. And, uh, but something happened last week where I felt like I couldn't do that. And I was speaking on suffering last week and something happened in the service at 10 o'clock actually uh, that just made me feel like I, we can't continue on. We need to stop. We're not done looking at this suffering issue. And so if you were here at 10 o'clock, you know what happened. Uh, if you're watching online, uh, you know what happened. Uh, but in case you weren't, let me just tell you a little bit about what happened last week. Uh, so like I said, I was uh, speaking on the problem of suffering and how that messes with people's uh, belief in God. And uh, I, I, I finished talking about the problem of suffering, and I turned to people who are suffering, and I wanted to help people face their suffering the way Jesus faced his. And yes, Jesus did suffer. Sometimes bad things happen to good people, and it happened to Jesus. He's the Son of God. He committed no sin. He didn't wrong anybody. He didn't break any laws, and even he suffered. And so I I wanted to help people who are suffering to face their suffering the way Jesus did. And so I pointed to Jesus' prayer on the cross when he was experiencing unspeakable suffering. He he cried out this desperate prayer. He was quoting Psalm 22.1, which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, in his suffering, when his suffering was greatest, his faith in his father was greatest. He called out to his father in his suffering, and he experienced God his father in his suffering. And so I I told the people who were suffering, I wanted to lead them to face their suffering the way Jesus faced his. And so I asked people to bow their heads and close their eyes (coughs) And I was going to lead them through that prayer. And I just asked people in the room if, if they were suffering, if they would just slip up their hands. And I noticed people all across the auditorium lifting up their hands. And so I, I led them through praying that psalm that Jesus cried out from the cross, phrase by phrase, praying it for them. And then something happened as, as we got through that prayer. All of a sudden, I felt overwhelmed. I could feel your suffering. I don't know how else to describe it, but I could feel the weight of it all, the pain of what you felt. And I began to cry and weep and moan uncontrollably. I couldn't breathe. Uh, I was praying for you. I was praying with you. And so I just collapsed down on my knees and I just kept sobbing for you and with you. After a few moments, I was able to catch my breath, and I, I interceded for you the best I could. And, and in that moment, I, I, so that doesn't happen to me. 
That's like not my thing. And so I don't, all I can describe is that it happened to me. Like I didn't do it. It happened to me. And I believe what happened is God gave me the ability to feel what you feel. So my heart would break for you and your suffering the way God's heart breaks for you in your suffering. And so I knew I couldn't just come back this week and just go on and let's do another sermon and let's just you know, study another passage. I, I think we're not done talking about suffering and so we're going to hang here for a while because I know some of you are suffering. Some of you are suffering physically from illness, from disease, from pain, maybe physical pain. Some of you are suffering emotionally from paralyzing fears, from uh, overwhelming anxiety, from debilitating depression, maybe from emotional abuse in your past, maybe even in your present. And some of you are suffering relationally. Maybe you've gone through a painful divorce, or maybe your marriage is struggling, or maybe one of your children is struggling, or maybe you have an elderly parent who is struggling. Or maybe you're single, but you don't want to be single, and you're, you're suffering from the burden of loneliness. And then some of you may be suffering financially. You're on the verge of poverty, of hunger, maybe even homelessness. And if you're not suffering now, you know someone who is and who needs you to come alongside them in their suffering. And so I know I couldn't just come back and talk to you about what I was planning to talk to you about this week. Uh, it would have been awesome, but I just, I know I couldn't talk to you about it. We're not done yet. And so I went for a long walk on Monday afternoon, and I just prayed, and I said, Lord, what, you know, what am I supposed to say to my people? I feel like you're, you're not letting me go on and just do the next thing. And so I feel like God gave me a word, a word for the suffering, and what I mean by a word is it's where like you get a message that's for today, for the people today at this season in our, in our journey together. And so I'm going to share this word with you today, and I, I hope it blesses you. Now, we're going to start in a really weird place. It's really weird. We're going to start this word in the genealogy of Jesus. Yes, yes, it's spicy. The genealogy of Jesus. Now, in Matthew's account of Jesus' gene genealogy, it's the typical ancient Jewish stuff, you know? So-and-so was the father of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, you know, so on and so forth, right? It's, it's typical ancient Jewish stuff. And, and of course, in, in the Jewish heritage, their lineage always went through the males. It's just the way it was back then. And so you have all of this, so-and-so was the father and so-and-so. Except in Jesus' genealogy, there's four women mentioned. And I think it's the who gets mentioned and why they get mentioned that reveals something about our Lord's heart for the suffering. Okay, so the first one that gets mentioned, it's in Matthew 1, 3. Her name is Tamar. So Matthew 1, 3 says this. <coughs> Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Okay, so who are these people and what is their story? I mean, why is it a big deal? Well, Judah was one of the 12 sons of Israel. So he's a big deal in Israelite history, right? So that, that one's, we understand that, but why Tamar? I mean, what is it about her? Why is she in there? And this is so interesting. Their story, Judah and Tamar's, it's like something out of an ancient novella. 
So let me tell you a little bit of their story. So Tamar was actually Judah's daughter-in-law. She was married to Judah's oldest son, but he tragically died. And in their day, it was appropriate in their culture for another brother of her husband to marry her so that she could have a male offspring to, uh, to continue the family name, to take care of his mother, and to take care of their property. Because back in that day, uh, women were not allowed to have jobs or own property. And so Judah promised Tamar that once his younger son got older, he would let his, older, his younger son marry Tamar and fulfill his responsibility. Well, along the way, he changed his mind. And so he didn't let his son take care of Tamar. And that left her in a desperate situation. And like I said, in their day, it wasn't like she could just go get a job and take care of herself. And she was not allowed to own property. In fact, her situation became so desperate that she did what, you know, what many women in her position in that day did. She became a prostitute to take care of herself. Now, along the way, Judah's wife died. And he became lonely. So lonely, he decided to visit a prostitute. The prostitute had her face covered. So he didn't know who this prostitute was. Guess who it was? It was Tamar, his daughter-in-law. And he got her pregnant. And she had a son named Perez. And here's what's so remarkable about their story. Judah, his ex-daughter-in-law Tamar, and their son Perez all made it into Jesus' lineage. I mean, you think you got baggage in your family? Come on. Why do the Christian scriptures include Tamar in our lineage of the man we believe is the Son of God, our Savior? I think this is important. Jesus came from broken, wounded people. He gets it. And if you're broken... If you're wounded, he came from broken, wounded people too. He understands. Broken, wounded people like Judah and Tamar. Now, the next woman in Jesus' lineage is named Rahab. Uh, this is Matthew 1, 5. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. <coughs> okay, again. Why mention this Rahab lady? What's so significant about her? Oh, this is so big. Okay. So the Israelites had been uh, slaves in Egypt for 400 years. That's twice as long as we've even been a country, right? And, and God miraculously ra raised up the prophet Moses and miraculously led the people of, Israelite, of Israel out of Egypt, out of their captivity, bringing them to a land that he was going to give to them. And he performed all kinds of miracles along the way. And the people who lived in that land heard about the miracles that God was doing for the Israelites. Well, there was a woman in that land. Her name was, name was Rahab. She lived in one of the cities in that land, and she was also a prostitute. And as I, I said before, that's not meant to say something negative about her. It probably means she experienced some pretty unpleasant situations in life that left her in that situation. Well, anyway, she heard about what God was doing for the Israelites, and so she sent them a message and said, hey, I'll help you capture my own city. 
because she believed in God that much. Well, because of her act, once the Israelites captured her city, they took her into their tribe. They took her in to become an Israelite, which was it's a beautiful thing. And one of the men, one of the Israelite men, married her. And they became a family together. It's such a beautiful picture of grace. And they had a son. So this non-Israelite ex-prostitute named Rahab is in Jesus' lineage. And I think the whole point in this is that Jesus came from broken, wounded people. And I just want to pause for a second and say something about the sex industry Because now we've seen the first two women in Jesus' lineage were in such desperate situations that they became prostitutes. So I want to say something about it. Because there's there's a perspective going along in our culture today that's seeking to glamorize the sex industry. Like making women, uh, young women think, wow, what a great way for a young, pretty woman to make a lot of money and enjoy yourself along the way. That perspective is not true. It's not true today, and it especially wasn't true in ancient times. I'll assure you, none of the women women in in the ancient times looked forward to selling their body for money. Most of them, most minors and women that end up in the sex industry get there because of crimes, abuse, because of some kind of Uh, manipulation because of desperate poverty or addictions, some kind of suffering that sucked them into a cycle of suffering. No little child, no little girl wakes up one day and says, you know, my goal in life is to become a prostitute. That's ridiculous. Terrible, horrible situations lead people into that situation. And and I want you to know something. If you've ever felt like someone made you do something you didn't want to do, if you felt so desperate that you felt like you had to do something that made you feel ashamed of yourself, I want you to know Jesus gets it. He came from broken, wounded people. And there's nothing that you've done that you should feel embarrassed about in his presence. And you should not need to feel ashamed in his presence. He gets it. He came from broken, wounded people too. So the next two women, sorry, the next two women in Jesus' genealogy, uh, Ruth and Bathsheba. And here's the deal. They're also neither one Israelites. And so the four women that are in Jesus' genealogy, none of them are Israelites. And all I want you to see in that is Jesus came from an ethnically, racially diverse background, just like most of us. Now, Ruth was one of them. She was a Moabite, so she lived in the land of Moab. And and during a famine in Israel, uh, one family, it got so bad in Israel that they went to Moab. And while they were in Moab, this older couple, their son married Ruth. Well, the famine was so bad, it ended up hitting Moab too, and the the old, the the man, the... uh, Oh, what's her name? Uh, Ruth. Ruth's father-in-law, he ended up passing away, and then her husband passed away. And though Ruth was young enough to go ahead and get remarried and start her life over again, she didn't choose to do that. 
Instead, she did a very brave thing. She decided to take care of her elderly, uh, widowed mother-in-law. Wasn't even her own flesh and blood. She chose to take care of her. And I want you to think about what she did. Because as I said, she had very few options as a young single woman in their day. She took care of this, this woman. Her name was Naomi. She took care of her by going and begging for food in, uh, from wealthy landowner owners in the area. What a beautiful thing. She chose poverty out of love. Jesus came from broken, wounded people. And then there's Bathsheba. Now Bathsheba was married to a man in the Israelite army. She ended up having an affair with the king of Israel at that time while her husband was off fighting. She got pregnant. Well, the king of that day that she had the affair with, King David, had her husband murdered. And then he took Bathsheba as his own. They had a son. His name was Solomon. And though King David had many other sons, the one who's in the lineage of Jesus is Solomon. So please get this. The son of an adulterous, murderous affair. That's baggage. Why are these people in Jesus' lineage? Why, why do we even know this? This is so important. Jesus, as the oldest son, in, in the Jewish culture, the oldest son was responsible to keep the family tree, the, the family genealogy. And so as the oldest son, it was Jesus' responsibility to keep this genealogy. We believe they would rewrite them each generation to make sure everything was fresh and, and what it was on was, was clean and fresh. So Jesus is the one that made sure we knew about these four women. This is the kind of, this, this, these stories are the kind of stories you hide from your genealogy, right? You don't highlight them. Jesus highlighted them. Why? He wanted us to know. I come from broken, wounded people. And so I want to just say to you, if you are suffering, if you are broken by life, if you have been wounded by people, Jesus gets it. He came from broken, wounded people too. But it's not only that Jesus came from broken, wounded people. He also came for broken, wounded people. Now, Jesus just, he attracted the suffering to himself when he began his public ministry. And early on in his ministry, he, he did something very remarkable that sort of set the tone for what his movement would be all about. It, it happened at a large dinner party at a religious leader's house. Uh, this is Luke chapter 7, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees, that's the religious leader, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And when they reclined at the table, they didn't have chairs. They, they would lean on their elbow at the table so their feet would be out away from the food. You got the picture? A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, meaning she was a prostitute, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him 
and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. This broken, wounded woman, clearly suffering, came to that house in her humility. She probably was already well aware of some of the messy decisions that had led to a messy life. And as I've suggested, she probably didn't choose to get there on her own. And yet she came to that house looking for something. She wanted compassion. She wanted mercy and grace. But all that religious leader could see is her messiness. And he wanted somebody, either Jesus or him, to shame her. Isn't that sad? Isn't that terrible? And too many churches view messy people like that poor woman, the way that religious leader did. This is sort of what goes on. They view themselves as neat, the right people, and the keepers of neatness. And when they see messy people, they think, oh, those are the messy, sinful people. And they want to take out their hammer of shame and pound messy people into neat people. And it doesn't work that way. And Jesus knows it doesn't work that way. You know why? Because he came from broken, wounded people. And he came for broken, wounded people. So I want you to notice how he responded to this sinful woman and all of the messiness of her life. You ready? Uh, this is Luke 7, 48. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus forgave this woman of her sins. And what did he say? Why did Jesus forgive her? What did he say? Because of her faith. When anything she did, it was her faith in him. It was her faith that, I believe this man can forgive my sins. She believed it, and Jesus said, you're forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's beautiful. And I don't want us to miss something, though, because this is so important. Why was she there? This woman likely spent her whole life in this town. And everybody knew the story of how she ended up becoming a prostitute with all of the messiness of her life. She had likely avoided this house, in particular, her whole life. She certainly didn't feel attracted to ever go to a dinner at that house. And she certainly wasn't attracted to that religious leader's movement. So why did she show up there? What made the difference? What gave, gave her the courage to show up? Jesus was there. And Jesus came from broken, wounded people. And Jesus came for broken, wounded people like her. And she sensed that. And I want you to know, if you've been broken by life and wounded by people, Jesus gets it. He welcomes you into his presence. He can give you the forgiveness and the peace that you long for. And that's why when he started this movement, he called the church. He intended that the church would be a place where suffering people could find compassion. A place where wounded, broken people could find hope. A place where messy people with messy lives could 
bring all of their messiness to him and find the grace and forgiveness that we all need. And so that's why this church here, City Church, we're a messy church. And we are a messy church intentionally. And by messy, I mean we welcome all people, no matter what their background, no matter what they've done, no no matter what they've done in their past or what they're doing in their present. They are welcome in this community of grace. I hope that in this community you can also find compassion and mercy and hope and peace. And I will acknowledge that does mean things get messy around here. And Jesus was okay with it, so so are we. That's just the kind of church we're going to be. But I, I, I want you to know something else. This is the rest of my work. I'm not done with my work. Jesus came from broken, wounded people. Jesus came for broken, wounded people. But even now, Jesus comes to broken, wounded people. You see, before Jesus left this earth, he ascended into heaven, he told his followers that he was going to send us his spirit to be in us and to be with us. And he promised that he would give us comfort in our suffering. He didn't promise he would take away our suffering, but he said, I will be with you in it. And one of the writers of the first uh, uh, letters to Christians who were also suffering because of their faith in Jesus, it's called the book of Hebrews, or the letter to the Hebrews, It gives us this promise, and it says this. This is Hebrews 2.18. Since Jesus himself was tempted when he suffered, he is able to come to the help of those who are tempted in their suffering. Jesus, through his Spirit, will come to you in your suffering. He will give you comfort in your pain, He will give you hope in your desperation. And he will give you peace in your heart. I promise you, he will come to you. And so I want to lead you to to pray to Jesus that he will come to you. And so if you would bow your heads, close your eyes uh, for a moment, I'm going to lead you in a, a prayer. And this is also a prayer from the Psalms. If you want to just whisper it with me, uh, As I lead you through it, that's fine. Or if you just want me to pray it over you, that's fine as well. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Yes. And he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Yes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, because you are with me. Yes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And Lord Jesus, I ask you to be with those who are suffering. I ask you to be with those who are in the valley of the shadow of death. I ask you to be with those who are suffering physically. I ask you to be with those who are are suffering relationally and emotionally and financially, Lord. Be with them in the valley. May they know your presence. May they know your peace. May they know your power.
that you're not a distant savior who doesn't get it, that you are with them, that you do get it, and you are with them in their suffering. Lord, I lift up those who are suffering, and I pray that you would give them peace, like you gave that weeping woman. Give them peace. In Jesus' name. As I prepared for this message, um, I uh, reached out to a friend of our church. Um, his name is Pastor Emmanuel Gianfi. He's, he's the one person that knows more suffering than any other person I know personally. Uh, he heads our social action efforts in Liberia, West Africa. He's a pastor there. And he's just, he's seen more suffering than any human being I know personally. Uh, he was orphaned. Both of his parents died at a young age and it made it a very uh, desperate situation for him as a young boy. Uh, he raised a family there in Liberia and they went through a brutal 13 year civil war, brutal, that was sweep through where they were living. They'd have to flee from their homes and just go into fields and hide. Uh, it, it devastated Liberia. Thousands died, left millions uh, living in poverty and left most of them without hope. Uh, he, has, he has cared for the, the orphan, the abused, the oppressed, the sick, the poor, um, as a pastor, as a leader of the movement there in Liberia. And, and recently, he and his community weathered the outbreak of the Ebola virus. I think many of you heard about that, that just that wiped out Get this, one out of every 20 persons in Liberia died. He lost uh, leaders in his medical clinic. They provided free medical care for the community. He lost pastors who served with him, serving the community. He understands suffering. And, and so I wrote to him and I said, Pastor Gianfi, would you help my people who are suffering? What would you say to them? And this is what he said. He said, suffering is like living without hope and seeking only what you need for the moment. When you do not have your daily needs, when you have distress and unrest and a lack of motivation and no peace, a lack of hope becomes your lifestyle. As a child, I lost both my parents at an early age. Every day, I had the chance to work hard or not. The choice was mine. My auntie taught me that suffering is not permanent because Jesus is alive. She taught me about his plans and promises for my life. As my eyes were fixed on Jesus, everything changed. In suffering, hope changes everything. We have lots of difficulties throughout our lives and even now, but our hope is built on Jesus. And he keeps showing up in every circumstance. And so if you're suffering, fix your eyes on Jesus. He came from broken, wounded people too. And he will come to you in your suffering. And he will give you hope. And hope changes everything. My prayer is that you, as you fix your eyes on him, 
that you would experience the Savior who came from and for broken, wounded people and that he would give you hope and healing. Our prayer team is going to be available here in the front. If, if God's still doing something in your heart and you know you're not ready to, to leave, please let us serve you in that way. Next week is Palm Sunday. It's a, it's a special day in the church year, and we're going to be taking communion together as a congregation on Sunday. And so I hope that will be a blessing to you as well. Go in peace. We'll see you next week.